0: Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The cloud of orange powder on the pristine snooker table of political podcasts. I'm Jacob Jarvis, the plain old Mr. Whippy to Keir Starmer's Sir Softy. On today's show, Rishi Sunak is under pressure over his wife's links to a company that benefits directly from his policies. Boris Johnson is gone, but has sleaze decreased in Westminster? Or have we taken our eyes off the ball? Plus, post Brexit red tape is stopping Europe's artists from playing in the UK. Why is the government cracking down on pesky musicians coming here and taking our gigs? And the PM says adults who can't do maths should be ashamed. Today's panel features a former accountant, the parent of a teenager bracing for their GCSEs, and someone who does A-level algebra to wind down. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, I put them through their mathematical paces. Let's meet the panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi.
1: Hello. I'm a recovering accountant. Is, am I meant to say, hello, <laughs> my name's Naomi and I'm a recovering accountant?
0: Whatever you'd like to be this week. <laughs> no, anyway, I know you are a massive fan of Succession. Oh, no am. spoilers, please. Oh, I uh, am. I gave away a really bad spoiler in the office the other day and felt very guilty. What have you thought about the drama at ATN's real-world equivalent Fox News? And can a major payout like this just be deemed a cost of running the rage machine?
1: I mean, obviously, the dream result was that this would all go... Through the courts, Fox News, Fox News would go bankrupt after a long trial that put Murdoch on the stand personally, having to testify under oath, um, and you know the whole the whole house of cards would fall. Um, I read a tweet. I can't. I tried to find it before coming on the show, but basically outlining the astronomical sum. I mean, we're talking billions that it would actually take to bankrupt Fox. So that may always have been a bit of a pipe dream. Um, and there was, of course, always a chance that Dominion didn't win if it went to trial. And that might be part of their calculation, because courts, obviously, in the US are hyper politicised in a way. Here, they're not yet, and hopefully won't be. But I do think it's you know a missed opportunity for American society, because what it needs and you know, all of, all that relates to Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and the rest of the cabal who just spread dangerous lies every single day was that it needed that lot making a court-ordered admission live on TV that they made shit up uh, and all the bullshit about the election being rigged being categorically false. So was that ever on the cards? I don't know, probably not. So again, I don't blame Dominion for taking the money. I guess their shareholders would have put pressure on them to do that. It's a lot of cash, um, and I think the case may have spooked Murdoch enough that he might even now rein in Tucker and the rest, in the short term at least.
0: Ros Taylor is Podmasters' contributing editor and host of Jam Tomorrow. Hi, Roz. Hello. Just Stop Oil protesters invaded the World Championships in Sheffield earlier this week, Roz, and they covered one of the tables in orange powder. Then there are more climate actions over the weekend from Extinction Rebellion. Is this all just getting less shocking and therefore... Their, their chance of persuading any sort of change is diminishing.
2: Well, if the aim of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil is to troll the right-wing papers, then they are certainly succeeding because what we have seen on the day of recording is three big things on the front of uh, the Telegraph, the Sun and the Mail having a go at these protesters as elitist, basically, and self-indulgent and the usual narrative of protest as a luxury for the rich. The rat is the risk for Extinction Rebellion and Just Up Oil, that what the right wing manages to do is to pull them into its culture war narrative and make it part of that. And as we know, with we saw exactly the same thing with the whole Gary Lineker BBC tweet issue. Once you do that successfully, you just talk about... Um, you you don't you start ignoring the actual issues at stake and you just talk about the often confected culture war between the elite and the non elite. And that is, as I say, the risk that XR face. But on the other hand, what more can they do? I mean the fact is this government has repeatedly eroded the right to protest and it has done that with the encouragement and the collusion of the right-wing press all the way. And what kind of government feels the need to do that? It's always been in the interests of the real elite to lampoon and mock protests. We've seen it repeatedly with suffragettes and uh, all, all, all the way. But very few British governments in recent years have done so much to actually try to ban protest. And... We just do need to be clear about what they have done. And the media in this country, unfortunately, does not want to acknowledge what. The government has done to crack down on protest because it simply isn't interested.
0: Is it because the media just treats this as content, just protest is just, just content from the machine, much like Fox News as I was speaking to Naomi about that? Yeah,
2: and it's just too difficult. I mean, we know what XR are protesting about and nobody wants to think about that on the right wing press because they've got nothing to say about it and they've got no solutions to climate change. And they would rather do anything but actually think about the issue at stake.
0: Marie LeConte is a columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hi, Marie. Hello. Elon Musk is saying he's going to make a truth-seeking alternative to chat GPT called Truth GPT. The internet isn't a happy place at the best of times. Would it be better if Musk just stopped trying to play around with it? And is it naive of him to think that the AI genie can be put inside its bottle in any way?
3: So I've been thinking a lot about Elon Musk recently, probably because I spend my entire life on Twitter and it's become impossible to avoid him. And and I do think there's something weird. So he's nearly kind of Boris Johnson-like. Um, in that again he's sort of impossible to ignore he wasn't in our lives and then suddenly he's everywhere all the time tinkering with everything and generally being tedious and 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 but you know at the same time my thing is that of course I think you know twitter and the internet at large would be a lot better if he just got bored or like you know found a new shiny thing uh, he could try and destroy instead but but then again you know I I wonder if it's a kind of like I don't know that emperor's new clothes thing in a way of actually We do know for a fact that tech bros have been ruining the internet in many, many wonderful ways for many years now. It's just that he's the first one being very public and upfront about it, I suppose. So so I wonder again, if that's not, if he's not been a kind of catalyst for people being incredibly frustrated by the way the internet and social media platforms have been run for ages now. And everyone as one has kind of risen up and gone, oh my God, enough.
0: Before we move on, a bit of news. We have another live show coming up in London. We are back at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday, May 24th. The lineup is Roz, Alex Andreu, Arthur Snell and Marie in her first live show appearance for us. If you're listening as a Patreon backer on Thursday, you've already got access to the pre-sale tickets and a discount code. Check your emails for the details. And if you're listening on Friday, tickets will already be selling fast. Act quickly for the chance to have Alex pick on you from the front row. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book your spot or search Oh God, What Now? on Patreon for the discount. Who remembers the hazy days of less than six months ago when Sunak said... This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. Fast forward to today and Sunak is under investigation for failing to declare a personal financial interest in his government's childcare subsidy. It means the Prime Minister, his predecessor Boris Johnson and his Justice Secretary Dominic Raab are all currently being scrutinised by various committees. What happened to putting an end to all this sleaziness? Ros, a piece in the New Statesman describes Sunak as continuity Johnson. Given your rather visceral hatred for Johnson and your more nuanced disdain for Sunak, I'm assuming you disagree a little bit. But is there a bit of a point there?
2: Well, I try not to hate Johnson because it's you know wasted effort.
0: He, I hate him. He
2: doesn't so. care, and yeah, I know, I know. I completely understand why. But you know, it's 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 like hating a you know. There's no there's no point to it. It just blinds you to the. Um, you know, the the reality when you get, get into this hatred thing. I mean, I think there's a key difference between Sunak and Johnson in that Johnson was really only in it and is only in it for himself. He is a publicity and money making vehicle for himself. Sunak, on the other hand, is not actively seeking to enrich himself as a result of becoming PM. And for the Conservative Party, that was one of his key strengths because, you know, he's so damn rich, he doesn't need any more so they were hoping that he wouldn't do the kind of sleazy things that Johnson did. He has a more what you might call noblesse oblige view of his job. Um, he really, he, he, you know, I think he has his patrician view that he is the man for the hour because he has the skills and he knows his way around a spreadsheet. Only someone as competent and intelligent as himself can get Britain out of the mess that it's currently in. I really think that he believes that. But it's the fact that he seems less embarrassed about these conflicts of interest than you would expect, which is really disappointing. I mean, the first rule when you're talking about trust, as I have found in thinking about trust for my book, is, you know, don't keep banging on about trust. (laughs) Um, The more you have to bang on about it, the generally the less of it you you are actually inspiring. And he really seems to have thought that his wife's wealth is not pertinent to his job. It seems to be a real blind spot for him.
0: Is it because he's just never around normal people? With his upbringing, he was probably never around the people that he's now are the the average public of the country which he's running. He's never around them. So you can't really feel ashamed if you never have to interact with anyone who would make you feel ashamed.
1: Do you remember the, the the video that emerged during the Trust Sunak leadership campaign of Sunak as a teenager, and he's he's speaking to camera saying, "Yeah, I've got friends from you know upper class, middle class, working class. Okay, well, well, not working class." So he admits it himself; he hasn't been around. Yeah, exactly.
0: If you live in sort of tighter confines where you have to be around people all the time, it self pleases you a little bit in a way that I suppose Sunak. Doesn't have to do on the. You spoke about the mess of the the, the countries in there, Ross. Could you say exactly what do we know about the mess that Sunak finds himself in right now at the at the time of recording? Anyway,
2: well, this is all about the declaration of his wife's interests in a company called Catamaran Ventures, which she uh, is, is is the company that invests in a company again called Kuru Kids, which is a childcare company that would directly benefit from his reforms uh, to encourage more childcare. So it emerged today, uh, at the time of recording, that he apparently did register his wife's interest in Catamaran Ventures, but for whatever reason, this particular interest was not actually made public, presumably because it was deemed too private and too sensitive. And it does, you do have to ask yourself, why can we not be trusted with information like that? How can it be that this is deemed information too private to be released into the public domain? Because this man is our PM. And we should be able to know these things. Now, I think that the reason this happened was that Sunak just simply thinks that his wife's financial affairs are separate from his own. And it is certainly true that she is far richer even than he is. But that's not a sustainable position.
0: What scale of hiding the truth are we looking at here, though? Is it as duplicitous as it might sound in the first instance? Or is it basically my wife is so fucking rich, I don't have a clue what is going on with her money? And she probably doesn't anyway. I
1: can't possibly keep it. How can you expect me to keep on top of all of her interests?
2: Well, this is perhaps the first time that a prime, Minister, prime ministerial spouse has really, really big financial interests in her or you know, in the past, it would usually have been his own right and it's a pretty unprecedented situation. As as I say, Sunak is not dealing dealing with it very well. It makes it very hard to get a clear picture of what's going on because the nature of her financial interests as well is such that they are opaque. She's a venture capitalist investor, so that means that she invests in a load of different companies. It's not like she just simply owns a part of a company, for example, as a lot of business people might. It is clear as well that he benefited from certain tax haven trusts when he was chancellor via his wife's interests. And we don't have a clear picture of that either.
0: Marie, you write about politics every day. It's part of the reason this sort of thing gets less attention because financial affairs are harder to write about than, say, extramarital ones.
3: Um, yes and no. I mean, it is definitely true that I think you need to have a sort of, you know, more in-depth knowledge on um, onion you know, kind of like financial affairs in, uh, in order to be able to write about it. You know, compared to shagging stories where actually like, these are quite straightforward to write. You know, you may get sued, but I mean, in terms of just kind of like understanding and explaining to readers, et cetera, that's always quite straightforward. But it's also, I think people probably care a bit less. So I do think that if there's, a story that that sounds particularly sleazy and, most importantly, sort of like runs and runs and runs, so, you know, kind of developments day after day after day, then you do get the public caring. But if it's a one-day story, which it usually is, actually it's also, I think, the fact that, you know, people just do not care as much.
0: So money, you think, can... Uh it's hard because there's not a there's not a human in it is there? money isn't a character do you think that is one of the one of the problems there it's not you can't characterize it in the same way
3: um i think yeah that there's definitely a lot of that i think there's a bit as well of um you know and i think we've seen that a lot in focus groups and polling A lot of people don't massively care if their politicians are actually quite wealthy like that's not so i think as a class they dislike the idea that obviously they're out of touch with the country but usually like, especially i think like prime minister and senior ministers they're not overly bothered about them being very rich um, or that are perhaps quite cynical about it, I suppose. So I think, yes, it's a mix of kind of, you know, lack of voters' interest. Um, but yeah, but, but also, it yeah, doesn't say, because even if you look at, you know, looking back at the expenses scandal, um, all the stories that actually stuck were the ones, you know, it was the duck pond guy, it was the pink laptop guy, it was like all the stories with a, like a human interest angle when actually quite a lot of those people didn't do, I mean, obviously did some stuff that was wrong, to be clear, but didn't do sort of like enormous wrong things. Whereas like the people who did very boring stuff of flipping houses and mortgage and stuff, quite a few of them ended up keeping their jobs in the end because actually they kind of flew under the radar and the press didn't care as much. Um, and so that was fine for them. So, so again, I think that that's nothing new at all. Like people will always prefer anything that's got a human, human angle, I suppose.
0: On the subject of human interest, is it hard to get people interested in Sunak's shortcomings when he's not a very interesting human himself?
3: Ooh, uh, I think there's a broader thing here of people have turned off politics in general, because, you know, Rishi Sunak is not especially fascinating. Keir Starmer is not especially fascinating. Sarah Devi, not especially fascinating either. Um, And also we've just kind of come out of, you know, years and years and years of constant political chaos, Um, So so I do think that your kind of, you know, normal person just doesn't care that much anymore. And and I found that really interesting. So I sat in on a focus group um, last week for a piece I was doing and actually not a single person there had seen the Labour Party ad against Rishi Sunak. People have tuned out anyway. And it kind of becomes a vicious cycle, I think, of people have tuned out anyway because Rishi is not really interesting. Because Rishi is not really interesting, there's not tons of like fascinating stuff to write about him. So people tune out and so on and so forth.
0: Ros, does class play a part in all this, though? Brits love sort of sex-filled reality TV-style scandal to maul over and criticise, but really rich people being a little bit dodgy just seems to be accepted as par for the course.
2: There are many moral ambiguities going on here. With um, sex-based sleaze, it's always true to say that it's easy to understand and it's easy to, uh, you know... Perve over basically, and that and people are more inclined to give it their attention for that reason. People perceived to be upper class enjoy more leeway over sexual sleaze, though, just as Boris Johnson did. Partly because, you know, we enjoy peering at and judging the women involved, as in a sort of Daily Mail sidebar style way. And ever since Henry VIII, it's been tacitly understood that powerful men have a right to pursue sexual satisfaction, whatever the consequences. That is something that is quite hardwired into our culture. And now that. We have women leaders and it, it, it's, it, it ought to have changed, but it doesn't. But I think as well, there's a lot of moral ambiguity over the whole issue, of, particularly of taxes. I mean, for example, how ethical is it to avoid, not evade, because evasion is illegal, avoidance is not. How ethical is it to avoid your taxes? It's legal. It can even, in some people's eyes, be admirable, depending on what you do with the money. You can often get a tax break, by, for example, by donating a shed load of money to charity. That's how people avoid quite a lot of inheritance tax. It's a recognised thing to do. Is that a bad thing to do? Is that a good thing to do? We don't know. It's really ambiguous. And that means that it's hard to engage with and hard to get a Clear kind of moral perspective
0: on Naomi. How do you think Sunak's managed to evade the level of scrutiny that was given to Johnson? Have we turned into a sort of optics only country, and so therefore he seems a bit more sensible? He looks a bit more sensible. He's much more presentable, so therefore we we agree that he maybe just is.
1: I will answer your question, but I I also think the question is how do any of these fuckers manage to evade the level <laughs> of scrutiny given to say a local authority councillor? If you are a councillor at, you know, even parish level, I think, but certainly uh, town, district, county, it isn't just that you have to declare an interest and it goes in a register and then you can participate as normal. If you have even a tangential link to a decision being made about an area, planning is the obvious one, then you have to leave the chamber. Like, you know, It's not just that you declare, oh, you know, yeah, uh, my mum lives on the street where this new development might be going in. You, you are not allowed to participate in the outcome. And yet, bizarrely, in the Commons, the threshold is entirely different. But to your, your direct question about how Sunak has evaded the level of scrutiny given to Johnson, well, I don't think he has. Um, it's been leading the news for three days now. And and Marie's right, the cut through may not be anywhere near that of Duck Houses. As well, it has to do with just the sheer number of scandals from Johnson and the optics. We've said it a hundred times in this show, but the reason people cared about Partygate was because it was so easy to understand, so personal, so blatant, so intentional. And we all remembered where we were at that time and the sacrifices we were making. And to a similar extent, so was Patterson, the first scandal that really stuck to Johnson like shit to a blanket. And Sunak's scandal just lacks that optical brazenness and requires more explanation. And yes, it's completely unacceptable. And I would be willing to bet that this wasn't intentional sleaze from Sunak. It's just that the family has so many fingers and so many pies and is so disgustingly wealthy that it probably is difficult to keep track of them all. Well, that's not me making excuses for him at all, by the way. If you can't keep track of your conflict of interests, how can you keep track of, you know, everything you have to do running the country? And you also shouldn't be Prime Minister if you can't set policy without personally financially benefiting from it in some way, which given their fingers and so many pies, they are almost always going to do in some form or another.
0: You mentioned that, you know, he's not really been able to keep across his own finances. But it also doesn't really seem that he's doing that for the for the country either. Inflation is barely down and food inflation is still at a really painful level. Has he actually been that more competent than his predecessors? Liz Truss being considered a complete anomaly and blip, let's forget about her. But Boris Johnson, let's say, has, she, has he really been that much more competent there?
1: I think the one very thin silver lining on this horrible news that will Badly impact millions of people in the UK is that for now, at least, it looks like Sunak is missing the open goal he set himself. So, the OBR, that Office of Budget Responsibility, predicted that the rate of inflation would come down to below 3% by the end of 2023. And that was if the government did absolutely nothing. So, his promise to halve inflation would actually be worse than if they just sat on their hands. And part of the forecast included inflation coming down to 9.7% within the first three months of this year. Clearly, that target has now been missed. So your question about competence, has he been more competent? It's relative. So obviously, judging on the, on the trust curve that you asked me to ignore, you'd have to say yes. And I think with that question, he is a marked improvement on his predecessors when it comes to how he is perceived in Brussels, um, potentially how he's perceived in, in other countries as well. But he's still arguing that trade barriers with our biggest market are a good thing. He is still spinning micro deals we sign with countries very, very far away, our economic wins, and he still presides over a sleaze-ridden party, you know, on top of his own sleaze, as, as you mentioned, lots of them are still under investigation for other things. So he is more competent, but he's still relatively incompetent when it comes to getting A grip on the things that voters are worrying about every single day
0: it's just our our bar is so low that is that's the problem here so therefore on all of these things it's hard to get wound up when you can just expect all of it it's just a an indication that maybe he's not continuity johnson in that he's exactly similar to him but we are in this long johnson period because that's completely warped our expectation of politics and of what our country should be like
1: Yeah, and and Marie touched on this, you know, it's a mix of sleaze among the political class as a whole now just being baked in with voters. Um, On this particular issue of the register of interest, I think, again, you know, it's slightly hard to explain, it's slightly esoteric to explain in a pithy sentence why you should register things in the declaration of interest and, and why that matters, Um, And and so people switch off at that point. They have other, much more important things to think about. It is a plague on all all their houses. And I I think the Tories do get more ire from the voters for it. But pretty much it's it's baked into the whole political class. The assumption is that they're all on the make.
0: Ros, Sunak tried to spice himself up a little bit today with his Sir Softy quip in PMQs.
2: Just how shit an insult was that? Well, I mean, on its own terms, it's rubbish, but it, more widely, I feel really quite angry about this. I find it just so insulting as a voter. Yeah. It's what I expect of like year nine or something, two boys trading insults in the yeah. playground. It's
0: the equivalent of poo head.
2: Yeah, it's pathetic. It's contemptuous of the electorate to assume that we find this kind of thing, you know amusing, let alone edifying. And I don't expect two allegedly very responsible, mature individuals to be indulging in it at PMQs when I want to hear them ask, you know, I want to hear Starmer asking difficult questions of Sunak and getting some vaguely intelligent replies. It speaks to an absolutely. Juvenile Westminster culture that we pay any attention to this crap at all, and that they know that there are plenty of publications that will just simply seize on it and go, Oh, oh, look what, look what Sunak called Starmer this week. Yeah. It's pathetic. Yeah. Sorry, really angry about no,
0: it. it. It comes back to the everything needing to be exciting and everything needing to be constantly thrown in your face there. And it's, I mean, it's just, I saw one headline that was saying he, he tested out a new nickname for him as if it's a sort of a, a developing ground for his new line that's going to help him save himself in the local elections or whatever bullshit that might be. And it's this kind of yeah. poe faced that... They're so unserious and they've got so little to offer that then we have to kind of pretend they maybe do.
2: It's some bloody juvenile spad who's about 27 and is really excited because he managed to get <laughs> his little his little joke into PMQs. God, it's pathetic.
0: <laughs> Naomi, away from the complete nonsense that there is there, is there any lingering sleaze you think attention has gone away from?
2: Bloody loads, isn't
1: there? There's loads. I mean, we Ros and I recorded a podcast um for the show I think it was um no god what else months ago now about the sheer number of sex scandals and investigations um that that were underway in parliament so for sure I mean so many I've forgotten them and cannot recall one other than of course we've got the 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 Raab and the Johnson things continuing at that that higher level that I don't think Average voters have even remembered, although we obsess over as as political nerds.
0: Marie, do you think the, the dodginess, does it get subsumed by horribleness as well? Of people like Suella Braverman, when she's being so egregious, it, the, the scandal side of things kind of can, can pass over because her whole brand is scandal and she's happy to put that out there.
3: Um, maybe, yeah. That's what I find interesting is that I'm... Um, both too young and too foreign um, to have really experienced the years of like 92 to 97 and the kind of last bits of the major government. But talking to people over the years, what they keep saying about it is that there was a kind of like stench of sleaze and kind of, you know, general unease about what was going on in Westminster at the time. And actually, people can really tell you about specific stories or the name of like specific MPs who were kind of engaged in various forms of wrongdoing. But there was just a kind of sense that the party was rotting and rotten. Um, And I wonder if that's not what's happening actually at the moment of actually, you know, even... I, and probably all of you, could not name every single sort of, you know, scandal, or MP who was suspended or under investigation, etc., and why they were put under investigation. But but there's just a, an aura of wrongdoing, I think, at this stage. So I think, yes, in a sense, obviously, you know, you, you do have the kind of, big policy scandals will always make the headlines in a different way and probably will have like will attract more debates right because we'll have the right-wing papers being in favor of it the left-wing papers being against them etc um but it's more I think the kind of background noise or background stench depending on what metaphor you want to go for I think that, that that's what ends up happening with all those kind of again little stories coming out one after the other
1: and of course with the s m p story rumbling away in the background as well um it you know, it sort of doesn't matter which part of the country you're in, who's who's leading you, whether it's those that are refusing to take their seats at Stormont, those that are under investigation and being threatened with arrest in Scotland, or whether it's it's Westminster politicians and their various crony contracts, sexual harassment, whatever, whatever. It just it just feels like it's a grubby class of people and it's just everywhere, and so you switch off from it.
0: Ros, on a, on a final note on that, what's what's going on in Scotland at the moment? How have things fallen apart so quickly for the SNP? Humza Yousaf is obviously having a pretty pretty bad time, it would appear.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's face it, the Scottish National Party had too little scrutiny for too long. There was too little domestic opposition to the what the party was doing, or credible domestic opposition, I should say, and Westminster was, as always you know, obsessed with Westminster, and what happened north of the border was of uh, less interest. And the reverence with which Sturgeon was treated did not help. So Yusuf ran entirely on the basis of continuity rather than on his own programme and his own beliefs. And most dangerously now, I think the party is trying to double down on some of the culture wars rather than explaining what it's going to do now and how it's going to reform itself. And you see that, for example, in New South announcing yesterday that the whole National Care Service plan, which was a good idea uh, in Scotland, is going to be pushed back. And of course, the National Care Service would be very expensive. But nonetheless, it's the kind of thing that a party, a progressive party like the SNP should be associating itself with. But it has not happened, and nobody <laughs> seems to be asking why. Um, they're more interested in, you know, the, per- the, the peripheral stuff. And it speaks to the way that the SNP is being dragged down by uh, minor issues when it should be, and you suffi- uh, especially should be setting out a clear programme for how he's different from Sturgeon and what he's actually going to do.
0: Now for a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. It's specifically for you this week, Roz. Uh, Duncan Davidson writes, Thank you very much for Jam Tomorrow. Question. In your opinion, how far back do the roots go of the failure of the post-World War II British settlement? Is it no longer being an imperial superpower, losing the American colonies, or 1066? And what's most important to come to terms with from a horrible history in order to be less well crap in cultural decline stuck in the past going forward.
2: Well, Duncan, thank you very much. Um, It's great to hear that you like Jam Tomorrow um, public service announcement over there. To answer your question, I think I can answer the second one better than the first. But um, I mean, the post-World War settlements were world War II settlement was pretty unique because it was based on a bargain between the government and the people, which was a kind of form of advanced social contract, if you like. You suffered through the war, you fought the war, and this is your reward. And there were elements, as uh, you'll know, because I uh, uh, went into it a little bit, about the fear of uh, communism coming to Britain and what that might mean and how the welfare state might be able to preempt any suggestion that Britain might might turn to communism. But this was something that could only happen when you had a welfare state, because previously the social contract was basically about giving people security from war in exchange for military sacrifice and, and support it was like yeah we'll we'll give you a peace we'll give you a peaceful society if you toe the line so it, it the, the nature of the welfare state means you can't really go back much further but in to answer your question about what we need to come to terms with the most important thing is to stop thinking about british history as a story of kings and queens and this is a phenomenon that has been going on since forever But unfortunately, we're still doing it now and we haven't broken free of it. And there are reasons for it, which is that, you know, we have some very colourful personalities in our history, like Victoria and Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and Charles I having his head chopped off and so on. And uh, so naturally, it makes sense for many people to see history through that lens. But... It's actually very misleading, and the more time that goes on and the more we move away from being an absolute monarchy, the more misleading it gets to do that. I mean, the term Victorian era suggests that Victoria was somehow in charge during then most of the 19th century. And she wasn't. You know, <laughs> we had a we had a parliament and a government and they made decisions. But for some reason, we have to call it Victorian. And the crown has encouraged, sadly, this tendency by encouraging us to see history through the royal lens. And frankly, often exaggerating the impact that Elizabeth in particular had on British politics, which was absolutely minimal, as it should be, <laughs> because we don't live. In, a, in an absolute monarchy. So, you know, it goes that that goes back to 1066 because if you think about if you, if you think about history of what was going on in Britain in the 9th and 10th and uh, 11th centuries, there were constant bloody invasions. You know, the Danes and uh, the Vikings were constantly tr- coming over to Britain and taking over bits of it and fighting. You know, it, the fact is that 1066 was just the uh, the invasion of a um, you know previously Viking faction that had gone to live in Normandy and then decided to invade us from there instead. It wasn't some sort of beginning of the new world. It was very much in the line of what had become before. So let's just stop thinking about bloody kings and queens, would be my suggestion. And on the subject of Jam Tomorrow, and I'll shut up in a minute, Jov, don't worry. Uh, watch this space. There'll be a bit more Jam Tomorrow soon.
0: In a former life, I toured in a band around Europe. We were relatively shit, but it was easy to do and everyone was very kind to us. For example, we crossed the border into Belgium while we were all asleep and all tried speaking terrible French to people in this shop and they looked at us like we were incredibly bizarre and stupid, but not like we were total wankers, basically. The other way round, though, now we seem to be much less hospitable to Europeans wanting to come here. German punk band Trigger Cut were stuck at Calais on the eve of a UK tour earlier this month, and key members of the Ukrainian orchestra were also denied visas recently. Naomi, Trigger Cut was stopped at the border because they said they had other jobs back at home. One of them is a landscape gardener. Why should that stop them from getting in?
1: fuck knows Uh, probably a case of computer (laughs) says no poorly drafted policy being interpreted to the letter or I don't know a border guard just not knowing what it is they're supposed to be doing the real story is that it is all a complete mess uh, and we are becoming an international embarrassment as a consequence and uh, bands like this are now boycotting the UK
0: unsurprisingly isn't having two income streams like this actually very much in keeping with tory values.
1: <laughs> You'd think.
0: They're insulating themselves from the cost of living crisis as we all <laughs> as we all should be. They could perhaps survive off 20p meals the whole time they were here.
1: And pick some fruit while they're at it.
0: Foreign Acts needs a, a certificate of sponsorship document to to play at venues across the UK and they can be valid for ranging from 30 to 90 days most musicians don't actually get paid very much. And a lot of these performances are run by DIY groups. Is this the exact sort of red tape that we were promised would go after Brexit that we're actually seeing there seems to be a, just a shitload more of?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's the number one issue that comes up. So at Better Ritten we talk to businesses every single week, um, many of whom are involved in the cultural sector. And whether you speak to uh, the Federation of Small Businesses, the Institute of Directors, banks that do their own surveys of SMEs or surveying what's coming into us, the number one issue that they are all citing as a massive problem uh, beyond everything else is red tape and access to talent and skills. Um, without question, that, that comes up. The lengths the entertainment industry has gone to to try and get the government to agree a common sense uh, approach to all of this and reduce the bureaucracy has fallen on completely deaf ears. And it's not just DCMS uh, and the Home Office, it's also DEFRA. So, for instance, if you've got ivory in the bow of your violin bow or obviously, you know, certain keyboards and things like that, that is now an issue in taking your instrument in and out of the country and in and, and out of of the EU and into the UK um so I guess yeah more, more evidence of the incompetence that we talked about earlier and it's it's you know it's just so fucking depressing we re- released a report last year that got so much traction in the media uh, more you know you know sometimes you do a bit of work and you think oh this is going to be a great story and then no one covers it and then there's one that you think this is interesting but i don't know if it'll get any coverage and it goes viral this was very much the latter um the 45 percent um there'd been a 45 percent decrease in british acts being booked for european festivals so the the, the, the opposite problem are, are people going out and we're going to be updating that research quite soon in time for all of the, the summer festivals to gauge how Brexit is still impacting the number of acts coming to the UK. Um, and, you know, British music exports have long, I think, been superior uh, to those from many other countries. And while it's easier for a European act to omit Britain from a tour than a British act is to omit all of Europe, just is Brexit in a nutshell? Um, you know, it's absolutely heartbreaking that that we're doing this to what should be an enormous amount of soft power for for a global Britain.
0: Yeah, I, I used, to have, used to have friends who would go out to Europe every summer basically to play gigs because people were just really nice over there and you could go to really small obscure cities where loads of people would turn up in a way that in England if you go play Manchester or London there's loads of other stuff happening so you'll have sort of four people and the yeah. other band watch you and you don't get that in Europe. I also like the idea, Naomi, of uh, ivory instruments being banned. Sounds like the uh, the Wheel of Fortune next thing that could be woke on the middle of the line <laughs> next week. So woke border control bans ivory instruments from entering <laughs> England. It's, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of complexities there. Ros, does a lot of this just come down to who the Tories care about pissing off? Because... Orchestras are for the liberal elite and punks are all going to vote for Labour anyway, aren't they? Or green.
2: Yeah. it's a weird one it's more complicated than you might expect I mean some tourists absolutely love the opera Michael Gove for example he's a big opera fan Angela Rayner I neighbor Labour does too there's something about opera that I think has a profound appeal to politicians and not just because they so often go there on jollies but there's a feeling that British musical culture in particular is so strong that it can fend for itself I mean we have Glastonbury right we have Glyndebourne uh, greatest festivals of their kind in the world aren't they you know of, of course they're, they're but they will survive, they will do that. That's all we need. And in New Labour, there was this desire to show that they were all about pop, you know, Britpop, rather than... Elite culture as well. It was seen, of, seen as part of being closer to the people and trying to distance yourself from uh, what was seen as elite music, in particular. And part of that is saying, you know, you don't need uh, state subsidy because state subsidy is is controversial at any time, but it's particularly controversial during a cost of living crisis. And that kind of mentality has extended to the idea of giving special treatment to musicians post-Brexit. There's this very Brexity idea that it will all be okay, won't it? Because we're the greatest country in the world and we have the greatest festivals and the greatest pop musicians and we always have done and we always will. It's fundamentally complacency, I think.
0: Is there this sort of Brexit short-sightedness here that seems to be that people believe that Britain can just be great, but with anything, there's sort of there's steps and there's levels, and there's little levels you need to take, and bands need to be able to go and do little tours that don 't make very much money and probably aren 't very good for the economy on on a singular level, maybe collectively they are, but that's that's how then you get the Arctic Monkeys or you get Oasis. they all started off playing at crap clubs and little pubs and stuff like that. i 'm sure they had all those sort of shows. Is it that the Brexit mindset is just that Britain will be great? And it will be great, but there's no there's no roadmap to get there.
2: Yeah, and there's being a top politician; it leaves very very little time for doing cultural stuff. When you do do cultural stuff, it's nearly always because you've got free tickets to something as a result of corporate sponsorship of some kind. It's basically a jolly. And so it's inevitably then a major prestigious event. It's not watching a band, you know, a gig down the pub. And so you become very distant from that, uh, from that place and that place where uh, talent comes from. And all you see is the kind of glitzy, polished version of British culture. And I think it's one of the unhealthy things. It's probably inevitable, but it's one of the unhealthy things that leads us to the situation we're in now. Do they seem to have any plan for culture, or are we going to have to spend our Friday
0: nights playing maths, thing, essentially?
2: <laughs> I mean, there isn't to be, there certainly isn't anything like a mission statement on the, uh, you know, on the government website about what they want culture to be, apart from, obviously, Britain is going to be brilliant, you know, and, and platitudes about that. Culture has become recently a bit of an arm of levelling up. And that means it's based not on excellence of individuals or anything, but basically doling out money to areas with Tory MPs who could do with a bit of a plug. It's pork-barrel politics, essentially. And the focus is therefore on infrastructure. So like a lovely new, you know, center of some kind, something you can actually see and that MPs can point to as a tangible result of money being spent, as opposed to the much more difficult, you know, grants and so on and and support for individuals which is much harder to show that you've achieved something and so the the bias is always in favor of buildings film and tv also receive lots of attention because they're seen as a more democratic they're more democratic art forms like anyone can go to the uh pretty much anyone can go to the cinema and and pretty much anyone can can watch tv you know that is a that is not an not an elite art form that can only be consumed in particular in London. Like say the Royal Opera House, and it's all summarised by what you could call the you know the world class epithet. The the assumption being that we're already fantastic because we're not going to talk down our creative industries. No, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. Uh, they just need a bit of you know tactical propping up occasionally, but not in any kind of systematic way.
0: When it comes to the arts, it matter that the people involved necessarily are. Are world-class or good there, though? So talking about a a sort of non-tangible thing here, young people being able to go to gigs and then not being in parks, smoking weed, which is disturbing people in their houses or whatever. They're at a gig, they're doing something nice. It doesn't matter if the bans are are good then or not. It's stopping antisocial behaviour. And is this how this government isn't getting things fixed because it looks solely at the tangible and doesn't look at, well, if we do that one positive thing, it might actually have a... A sort of glowing halo effect that's, that helps other areas.
2: Yeah, this plays into what I was saying about, uh, you yeah, know, being very reluctant to support individuals in particular and any kind of organisation that is seen as particularly um, elitist. The example most recently was uh, the BBC Singers, for example, classical music um, choir, which uh, who had their uh, who who were basically axed and then quickly revived once it was realised that was a bad thing. And similarly with English National Opera, which were, was basically told to leave London, which is not really the useful way to think about it because it's not it's not necessarily nurturing uh, talent outside London at all. It's just forcing people to spend a lot of money doing something for the sake of it, rather than actually awarding it on the basis of quality.
0: The end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Ros, what's yours?
2: Um, I wanted to point out some pretty shameful disingenuousness by Rishi Sunak at PNQ. Ed Davey asked him why kids are not be able to see NHS dentists. He claimed that the numbers seeing an NHS dentist were up 45%. And indeed, they were because he was comparing the 2021-22 figures with the 20-21 figures. And you may recall that there was a pandemic, uh, 20-21, and dentists actually closed their doors because of it. It was a deeply disingenuous thing to say. And in fact, only 46% of kids saw an NHS dentist that year. And the rest, uh, more than half, were lucky enough to have parents who could go private or just didn't go to the dentist, as will have been the case for for millions of them. There is no expectation that the NHS should provide dentistry services to kids anymore. And he should be honest about that. Naomi. Well, hot
1: off the press uh, this morning, if you're a Patreon back to listen to this, In case you missed it, this week, Best of Britain has announced that it is organising a massive conference on the 20th of June at the NEC in Birmingham called Trade Unlocked. We're doing it with the British Chambers of Commerce, International Chambers of Commerce, basically every trade body in the country. And we are giving platform to over a thousand businesses of all sizes from all parts of the economy in a one day major summit that will be focusing on trade every manifesto of every political party will be written over the next few months ahead of a 2024 general election and all party leaders are going to be wanting to talk about growth how to get it and there is a massive elephant in the room which is our relationship with Europe other the trade barriers that we have in place and so what this conference will do is to say hey manifesto writers there's a huge amount of evidence here from business whether it's fishermen and farmers or pharmaceuticals and fintech they all agree on these policy proposals for giving British trade the shot in the arm it so desperately needs so we think it's going to be a really exciting conference there's going to be musicians speaking there's going to be fishermen and farmers like I said there's going to be major major political figures as well Um, And so, hey, if you're listening, if you're a business that trades with the rest of the world, with Europe, or you have ambition to, you're very, very welcome to come along. And there are more details at tradeunlocked.co.uk.
0: Now, we spoke a lot about transparency in this show. Have you revealed that you are part of the Anti-Growth Coalition, though?
1: Um, I'm funded by Big Tofu, who are the headline (laughs) sponsors of this woke conference.
0: And Marie, what was your under the radar this week?
3: Um, The Economist published a fascinating story on the King of Morocco last week, and the fact that he's kind of disappeared from view, and I get that, you know, Morocco may not be fascinating to everyone, but it is, you know, a country that managed to withstand the kind of Arab Spring where people protested and the king actually quite early on said, Fine, fine, actually I hear you, and did quite a lot of reforms that have changed the country a fair bit. But since then he's basically changed quite a lot and become more conservative again. And it is also really rarely seen in public. And there's a lot of secrecy around, you know, the entire royal family. He is, I think, in the top five of wealthiest um, heads of state in the world. Morocco is actually doing quite a lot of work with Britain at the moment so that there's that bit of relevance but basically yeah so two MMA fighters from Europe ended up befriending the king and moving to Morocco and as far as we can tell they've kind of captured his entire attention and they spend you know up to like months at a time away from the country on holiday together the three of them and they've kind of become a weird part of the royal family and royal advisors despite having nothing to do with politics or really Morocco Um, and anyway yeah so I'd really recommend reading about it it's absolutely like just fascinating.
0: I always feel really stupid every time we do these but mine is the the Greg sausage roll row I don't know you've seen it but that there is going to be a uh, three days in court for Greg's arguing for the fact they should be able to sell their products 24 hours a day and as someone who thinks there's probably quite logical arguments for say drug legalization the notion that there is potentially then a crackdown on selling Sausage rolls and steak bakes just feels very strange to me. Uh, I also was very annoyed that they missed out on the headline of let them eat bakes or sausage rolling with the punches. One of the two. No one seemed to go free for them. So it should be a lot of sack subs across the country, in my opinion. But yeah, that's my very flippant. But one that I do think there's, you know, there's an important thing to discuss there of just why... Why can't we pick our battles on what we're going to crack down on? Is Greggs? Can we really not live in a country where I can have Greggs any time I like? I just think that is really
2: stupid. No, it's for your own good that you're only allowed to uh, buy it and set trading hours. It's just, you know, don't, don't complain. This is, it. this is a, the
0: libertarian in me. I'm allowed to decide my own, my own for my own good. So if I want Greggs at 2 a.m., I should be able to have it.
2: Can you get Deliveroo Greggs at 2 a.m.? I guess you Oh, right. Well, okay. not
0: at 2 a.m., I don't think. But I, in in lockdown, had a really bad phase of ordering greggs to be delivered to my house uh, just because you know anything to get me through the c- crushing days of working from home constantly Greg's was what brightened it but yeah i wasn't not a very healthy way of dealing with things i wouldn't say and that's the show stay tuned for the extra bit after demon is a monster by corner shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. For instance, you get access to our monthly Podcasters Question Time live on Zoom. The next one is next week on Thursday, 27th of April with our very own Roz Taylor.
2: Uh, Worried about this. No, don't come. Do come. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I'm sure plenty of people have come. (laughs) So search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how you can sign up.
3: Hello and many thanks from me to Kevin Pickens, Kate McDonald and Jen Maddock.
1: A big shout out from me and thank you so much for your generosity
2: to More Than Houston, M. Kion and Kitty Bedford. Thanks and best wishes from me to Sophie Yanutsu, Lizzie and Basil Holt.
0: And finally, a big thank you from me and hello to Kayla Fowler, Joshua Dodd, and Gail
2: Talk. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Podmasters Managing Editor, Jacob Jarvis, with Marie Leconte, Ross Taylor, and Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now?
0: is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. I was good at maths in school, but as one of Lincoln's foremost emos in the mid to late 2010s, there was only so much I could do to avoid the attention of the the quote-unquote bigger boys, as it's uh, been written here. So I got an acceptable but below potential B at GCSE. Rishi Sunak thinks that if you can't do maths at that level as an adult, you should be ashamed of yourself. Naomi is a former accountant. Marie does A-level algebra to relax, and Roz has two children, one of whom is about to enter the maelstrom of quadratic formulas for the first time as they head towards their GCSEs. So between us, do we have what it takes for a grade nine? Roz, is maths a real working class hero sort of subject in that it's really embarrassing if you're too good at it, but it's simultaneously quite embarrassing to be really, really bad at it?
2: Oh, I'd love to be good at maths. You know, I I got a C at GCSE Maths, which was my lowest grade, and I'm really ashamed of it. Uh, I wish I'd tried harder. But this is why Sunak's comments get a spiky reaction, I think, from people. Because if you're not good at maths, either you blame rubbish maths teaching or you blame yourself. Um, Frankly, I mostly blame myself. And either way, you feel kind of resentful about that. Um, Maths is something where you really need good teaching unless you're naturally very gifted and very into it. And the fact is that we don't have enough maths teachers in the UK. And for the PM to have turned around and said, well, you know, if you're not good enough, you're not you really should you know, sort yourself out, just chimes badly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it chimes terribly. And I think attaching the word shame to it perpetuates the problem. There's a brilliant organization, it's a social enterprise called Maths on Toast, and they work with parents and children. Um, to demystify maths and debunk it because the research shows that when a child has a parent who says, oh, I found maths hard at school, oh, I'm not very good at maths, that gets embedded in the child's psyche at such a young age that they think, all oh, masses is very, very different.
0: That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week with our ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to backers on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning and some fabulous merchandise. Thank you for listening and see you next week.